Hello, my name is Michelle Kelly and I'm the editor of Cottage Life Magazine. Welcome to the Cottage Life Podcast. In this episode, it's time for a road trip. We head to Peterborough, Ontario to get a private on-site tour of the world's largest collection of paddled watercraft at the Canadian Canoe Museum. Then, we take a look back at an old essay from the magazine that really highlights the importance of self-reliance while at the lake. This is the Cottage Life Podcast, where every day is the weekend. Hey, Cottage Coach, Adam Holman here. We don't get many summer weekends in Canada, so we need to embrace every single one of them. That means my family and I get outside no matter what. Whether the sky is gray, or the wind off the lake is chilly, or even when the mosquitoes are biting. But before we head outside, we need a reliable bug repellent, and that's where off gentle insect repellent comes in. It's deep-free and repels mosquitoes for up to five hours, so you can use it with confidence on the whole family, six months and older. Plus, the formula feels good on the skin, and it's not oily, sticky, or greasy. Try it. And you'll have one more great reason to embrace the outdoors every summer weekend. Canada, cottages, and canoes, the holy trinity of summer. When it comes to the latter, Peterborough, Ontario is home to the world's largest collection of canoes, kayaks, and paddled watercraft, all housed in the Canadian Canoe Museum. With more than 600 artifacts to display, the museum is short on space, and they are currently fundraising for a much-needed new building. Construction is already underway, with plans to open the doors next summer. A few weeks back, we headed north to see all the action in person. Here's part of that tour. So I am on site now at the Canadian Canoe Museum, and I'm here with Jeremy Ward, who's the curator of the collection, and with Caroline Hislop, who is the executive director. But I have to say, being here, it's, you know, you're surrounded by canoes, and, you know, they're literally hanging from the rafters, and there's so much, a feast for the eyes, and anyone who's really into canoes has sort of found their heaven. So tell me a little bit about how this place came to be, Jeremy. It began as a as sort of a casual um, idea to enhance summer programming at a canoeing camp to bring in a heritage component, uh, but then that idea became compelling and uh, drew enough gravitational pull that it it, it um, drew people to this project like any amazing grassroots project that slowly created this incredible portrait of our connection to natural environment, I think to each other. Um, expressed through a watercraft that is so inherently tied to a landscape like we see in Canada, but with such a diversity. Um, And I think that's what really strikes people is they come here expecting perhaps a canoe that might resemble something they see on the lake or at their cottage. And yet when you dip your toe into the story of the canoe and kayak, you, you find what you might expect to see, but then you find such diversity and such rich traditions that are all connected to the same concept. And and it sort of breaks down these barriers. I find, you know, after working here for over 22 years, working with this astonishing collection, I've never found a limitation of working with a themed collection. I've never ceased to be inspired or baffled or or, uh, excited um, by by, uh, an idea like this that, that defies 
definition and to see people come into this museum expecting to see one thing and just have the their minds blown by the scope and scale of what this story can truly tell and how they can find themselves in it yeah i mean exciting. absolutely there's you know it's not just canoes for one thing but also the, the canoes that are here they all look so different and they're all used for different things i would imagine so Carolyn, tell me how many canoes are in the collection presently <laughs> ah that's a great question do you want like the official count or like the real count oh. Well, obviously, I want the real count. <laughs> so we have over 650 canoes and kayaks and other paddled watercraft in the collection. Okay, so that's a lot. That's a lot. Okay, so the, but that's more than, I mean, obviously, that's much more than what I see here. So where are the rest of them? So in this building, we, we probably have just over, just over 100, 110 or so. In the back building, which is what we call it, some people call it the Canoe Cathedral, some people call it like the back, the back building. I've been calling it the secret collection. Okay, the secret collection. <laughs> so that, um, that facility has over 500 watercraft in it. Wow, so it's obvious why you need a new space because oh you're gosh. clearly bursting out of this one. And like truly, there are canoes ahead of above me, canoes below me, canoes to all around me. So let's start talking about them. Tell me the very coolest thing in this collection. I know that's probably in a, like choosing amongst your children, but where would you start? I would I would say there is no, I can't give an answer to that. My <laughs> my favorite or my the the one that excites me the most changes every day. Um, there are certainly a number of canoes that are that are very storied. They have uh, a story that may well be well known. About six feet away from me is a 20-foot orange uh, fiberglass canoe made in Winnipeg by Bill Brigden. And this was paddled by an absolutely mad paddler named Don Starkell and his two boys. Um, only one of the sons ended up completing the trip with father, but they paddled from Winnipeg and ended up at Belém, Brazil, uh, 20,000 kilometers later. Isn't that um, incredible? And that would explain why, first of all, for listeners, this canoe is how long? Uh, just over 20 feet. 20 feet. So mm-hmm. this is a long canoe. And what's very cool about it is there's stickers all the way along the side. Uh, this one says Bourbon Street. So I guess they paddle mm-hmm. to yep. New Orleans and Galveston Island, Texas and Belize. And it's a really interesting, colorful, uh, looks like a well-loved canoe. Certainly uh, anything, um, uh, certainly not in mint condition at all. We've seen photographs of this canoe. Its name was Oriana uh, when it was launched, and it was pristine and uh, quite orangish red. Now it's very faded, repaired a thousand times, and as you say, picked up bumper stickers all the way down the coast yeah, it looks of Central like, America. It looks a little bit like a backpack that's traveled through Southeast Asia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, wrecked, broken, uh, swamped on reefs, uh, washed up, um, hit by a boat. Uh, anyway, the stories go on and on and on. The, the greatest challenges uh, that they faced on their journey was actually from people, not from the natural environment. Exactly. Yeah, and hunger too. But uh, an amazing story certainly captivated people's imaginations. One of the one of the longest sort of recorded single uh, journey canoe trips uh, on record. And an important uh, canoe in this museum's collection, right in front of us, is um, uh, a beautiful little 13-foot birch bark canoe, a Wigwas Jiman. This was made by uh, a well-known canoe maker today named Chuck Commanda. And this is new to our collection. It's beautiful. Chuck learned canoe building from his grandparents, from William and Mary Commanda in Gidegon Zibi in Quebec, not far from Maniwaki. Now, the museum has several canoes by his grandparents. And as a young teenager, Chuck would uh, helped his grandparents uh, work on birch bark canoes. And, and he left that left that practice for several decades and returned to it. But uh, when he did, this canoe that we're standing next to was the last canoe that Chuck 
built that his grandfather was able to put his hands on and bless before grandfather William Commander passed on. Wow. And so this holds a special place in Chuck's, uh, in Chuck's life, and uh, it certainly holds an important place in terms of the museum's collection and also about cultural transmission in the modern modern age. Uh, Chuck, like many canoe makers, is are doing very important work. And canoe building is, for a lot of people, is, is, a, is a really important gateway back into culture. Um, and, and, and it certainly um, is an accessible way f- to share culture with a wider audience yep. as well. And so we see canoe making and canoeing initiatives right around the world happening today that are important. This is, this is a very important canoe here. Yeah, so it's interesting. Before we started recording, we were talking about uh, a very large birch bark canoe that's uh, a replica. You mentioned that it's hanging above us here, mm. um, and you were talking about how those kinds of canoes—it's harder to build them these days. And, and can you tell us a little bit about why that is? Well, I think for a lot of builders, the bush does not look like it did a hundred years ago. Right. Um, whether it's logging practices, uh, certainly on the west coast, uh, the the great canoe builders of the Pacific Northwest, working from the old growth red cedar, those those um, those ancient trees, right. um, have you know the the logging practices haven't left a lot for for the elders and the makers to work with uh, today. So that's a, that's a real challenge. Birch bark canoe builders, we uh, we're in conversation with a number of them and not only logging practices, but also climate change and infestations. Uh, white birch trees aren't maturing as, as old. You know, they go into right, decline, right. they seem, at a smaller age and other conditions as well, impacting the quality of the bark. And so for a lot of reasons, these these practices and traditions have an uphill battle today. And uh, so it's really precious, uh, the work that people are doing and continuing to do. Right. Um, see, now I knew this would happen, that we would standing amongst 160 canoes and it's you're already talking for about two of them for a half an hour but yeah we haven't even started walking i know so we should go turn this on what's next okay so we're going up the stairs into uh, a new section with some very uh interesting painted canoes and a what i would say is a canoe sailboat but like nothing i've ever seen before so where are we now uh, well, these are the amazing large uh, dugout canoes of a number of nations uh, on the Pacific Northwest Rim of what uh, many call Canada. Um, so this this uh, 40-foot dugout canoe in front of you, Michelle, this is, uh, this is a coastal and ocean-going canoe from Vancouver Island. Incredible. So this went on the ocean. Yeah, yeah. this is a saltwater traveler, um, clearly. Uh, this is not... A canoe that you would portage over uh, uh, on a river carry. This is a this is a canoe Certainly that comes not. up on the beach when it's not out in the deep water. Um, and and to uh, to some degree, yes, uh, canoes were fitted for sail. Uh, so this one has a set of canvas sails stood up on it, but they were sailed and they were certainly paddled uh, as well. Um, and how many people would be in this canoe at, at a time? Well, we've only seen one historic photograph of this canoe, but it was somewhat staged with uh, some outsiders with non-New um, Chalmers people or First Nations people in it. So there were, I think, eight people in the canoe. It would certainly take a good deal more than that for coastal trading, uh, for even potentially skirmish, but uh, for trading travel and, uh, and, and, and long journeys as well. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, to some degree... Um, hunting whales mm-hmm. uh, the gray wow. gray whales as well well it's and it's uh, what is it made of this is western red cedar western. so this sort of brings up an interesting question like 
a wonderful thing over the last couple of years, I think particularly, is that we've we've had greater awareness of you know the contribution and um, you know the rich knowledge of all of the First Nations here. Um, I know that some some people sort of question you know why we have um, indigenous artifacts in 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 our museums. Um, and I wondered what you would say to that and, um, you know, how you incorporate, um, you know, you, how you embrace Indigenous traditions when, when you're creating the collection and when you're showing and sharing the collection. So I, I think at the Canoe Museum, um, we're fortunate in that we care for a, a large amount of watercraft that do have Indigenous origin. And so, and right from when this building began in 1997, and these exhibits we're in right now, the, the people that were running the Canoe Museum at that point knew that in order for this to be done well, that they needed to travel out and consult and engage with the communities where these canoes have come from. And the journey that the museum's on right now, as we're thinking and building our new museum, is we're doing the exact same thing. So we're starting with um, building, and this, and I mean this, in the in the in the best possible way, is building relationships. These yeah. are ongoing relationships that the Canoe Museum that we're going to have with these communities for as long as we care for these watercraft. And so starting with the local First Nations and the local Métis communities here and then beginning to build out and looking at the watercraft that we have and, and asking the communities that they come from, how should they be cared for? Should we be caring for them? Is this our responsibility? Would you like them to come home? And, and, and being open to where that conversation is going to go. Right. And that's been... Um, that's been a rich and actually very fulfilling um, part of the new museum project is to start building these relations and and learning and listening, and it's it's um, it's a process. It's a relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And it's good that you see it as part of your responsibility. It's, oh, it sounds like yeah. 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 Um, so why don't you take us to see something else? <laughs> Surprise me again. Cottaging. Yeah, well, how about cottaging? How about Carolyn, good question. I should be the one asking so it again. So here we are. Jeremy. Jeremy? Regatta. Regatta. Oh, yes. Yeah. Ask me how many times I've stood on the gunnels of canoe and mm. tried not to fall off. Right. Fine. Yeah. How many? Many more times than I can recall. Yes, that's a, that's a cottage favorite. It is a cottage favorite. Well, um, in the, the Canadian Canoe Museum, of course, is currently located in Peterborough. Um, on Michisagi traditional territories. Uh, Peterborough was for over a century a manufacturing epicenter of wooden canoes. It was in some, many ways the birthplace of wooden canoe manufacturing. And in many ways it's the summer regatta that is the reason for that. Uh, 1840s, 1850s, you have a new population settling in this area and many other places as well, but of course the Peterborough and the surrounding areas is um, rich with lakes. And the summertime, uh, before the harvest and, and other things, um, was, was a, a time of, of celebration, you know, a high point and a mm -hmm. time of gathering. Mm -hmm. And getting on the water is, um, was a, a real passion at the time. And these summer regattas became a, a real thing where people would um, catch a steamer and head down 
to Rice Lake from here just to watch races and so on. What's really interesting is the early races were, uh, well, they were participated in by both uh, newcomers, by settlers or, or non-Indigenous people, and, and also local folks from the local First Nations. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the Rice Lake Indians, as they were sometimes described, uh, First Nation from Hiawatha, um, and also Curve Lake, uh, just to the north mm-hmm. of here. And so the races that you would see publicized in the newspapers, they would have these segregated events uh, for First Nations paddlers, men or women, and then non-Indigenous races. But then they would do mixes. And we assume that they were segregated in part just to give the, the newcomers a chance to actually pick up a trophy. Yeah, of course, because you've, you've got folks who are living, uh, their lifestyle is, is, is using the canoe. For you generations. Yeah, you yeah. don't stand a chance. Um, but then there were, in the, in the mid-1800s, there were a couple of enthusiasts who um, would show up, you know, and, and, and the world of the birch bark canoe is very foreign to a lot of people new to the country. And so they were starting to make dugout canoes to compete in these races. Um, there's one right behind us here, a little one. But this oh, looks yeah. like a manufactured canoe, but in fact it's shaped out of a basswood log. Uh, it's been reinforced to stabilize cracks in it. And so some of these, these enthusiasts who are making these precious racing canoes, um, when, you, when you make a dugout canoe, of course, you start with a log and you throw away about 95% of it. Sure. So when it starts to fail, it's, it's a major loss. It, you know, you're starting from scratch. Right. And so, so the origin story goes of this whole manufacturing industry of this area. Um, one individual, maybe several, but John Stevenson is credited with this, turned a dugout canoe upside down bent ribs over the outside of it, attached fast planking to the outside of the ribs and pulled a wooden canoe off of a dugout. That's in the simplest terms. Like but, a mold. And then if you look to my right, Michelle, you'll see there what it becomes is. a manufacturing mold. This is from a canoe company in production where we get actually purpose-built molds that are the same thing idea as a dugout canoe flipped over on a set of sawhorses, but you're using that cavity, that wooden shape as a template to assemble a wooden canoe over and you can make thousands. And if you look at the scars on this mold, you can tell by the, the thousands on thousands of copper canoe nails that have been pounded in that have scarred the wood, how much, how much volume of production just came off this one little mold. Yes. And right wow. overhead is a canoe that was made off of this mold. So you kind of have a beast and beauty or the beauty and the beast connection here. I love it. Yeah, and here's another example. I'll take some pictures of this to put it in the show notes. But this is, um, I mean, one looks like kind of like an old shoe mold. Maybe you could like it too. And this is a Labutin up here in the rafters. Really, really beautiful finished canoe. That's a really good comparison. Yeah, it is like being a cobbler where you're cobbling, you're, you're assembling pieces on a mold that you then pull away. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty not, amazing. It's not really mass-produced in the sense, like, it's not robotics. It's still hand-built by a craftsperson. And time-consuming, yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. I have to say here, um, the canoe in the cottage collection here, mm. there's a canoe that has a gramophone and a parasol and some big silk pillows. And I feel like I wouldn't mind being in that canoe on a fine day on Rice <laughs> Lake. It'd be pretty nice. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, this is a, the, this is the real old sort of... I think people think of this as like old Muskoka, you know, but really, in fact, it's old Kawarthas. This, that, that panorama here is, is uh, Juniper Island on Stony Lake 1910. You're Which right. Which is a and, very and special place. Yeah, yeah, everybody's turned out in their finery there, but for sure, it's, you would see the same all through the lakes here and up in the Muskokas, of course, same time. Okay, we have time, I think, for one more. So what, what is the thing that we've missed that you really want to tell us about? You want to take us to the back, Carolyn, to the collection hall? Ooh, the private collection? I mean, the secret collection. The secret collection? <laughs> The Canoe Cathedral. 
All right, so let's go across the lot. Yeah? Going across the lot. Okay, park. across the lot. Yeah. So here we are. Look at this. Okay, so this is a, how many square feet is this building? Um, what is this? Is this a hundred? No, the 30. Whole is, the whole is building is a hundred. This room is 30. 30,000 30, 30, 30, square, square feet, not meters. <laughs> 30,000 square feet. So just to describe, so because people can't see, one side of the building has what looks to be very old boats on them, but I suppose it's a, it's a, cult, it's a mix, I would think. It is a mix, yeah. yeah. Uh, some of them are very old, and some of them are actually quite new. So these are dugout canoes for the most part. Right, um, okay. From um, some very locally. Uh, on the left are dugout canoes that came out of the bottoms of lakes and rivers they around They look here. like, almost like driftwood. Yeah. Mm. Um, but really then spectacular as, driftwood. And then, but then as we sweep along this wall of cantilevered racking, uh, you see canoes from Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Thailand, Guatemala, uh, Indonesia, Cameroon, Philippines, Hawaii, uh, Florida, uh, and so on and so forth. California, Peru, Bolivia, anyhow. So it, let me let me ask then. You know, what's a canoe from Thailand doing in the Canadian Canoe Museum? Oh my goodness. Well, um, the, well, I think in part the idea of canoe, because the word is um, is just one one term for it that we use in English, but the, the idea of canoe really does defy a definition. And so that, that what's called a klong boat from Thailand, and you see these in, in the hundreds being paddled by folks coming to market with a canoe paddle, with a klong boat paddle, paddling, J-stroking, to jockey for position, bringing produce to market. Mm -hmm. um, they're an amazingly, I, I love the engineering of these, but they're a plank on frame construction. Um, but are they a canoe? Well, uh, not by Canadian shape or design, and yet they are part of this family. And so where does, this, where does the idea of canoe start and stop? It's really at some point when you take the original idea, which is pointed at both ends, paddled facing forward. You see these ancient dugout canoes here in Canada. You see them in, in the UK. You see them around the world. Um, and yet no culture in any period has just stopped at that simple idea, there's always layers of culture and aesthetic right. and performance la layered onto it. And so that's where it really gets fascinating. And I think whether that was the intention at the beginning of a collection like this, but when you gather together just such a constellation of different idea and tradition and art form into one space, you get this really interesting dialogue. So why is that here? Well, this is a, this is a canoe story from Thailand that uh, is still very much alive today. Right. And, uh, and, it, and to have it adding to the dialogue in this room is pretty amazing. Same, likewise, this Samoan dugout outrigger canoe right next to us here. Um, yeah, that, it's um, interesting how, you know, when all is, the new space is built and it's all full of these incredible watercraft. It's almost, it is in Canada, but it's the, almost like the complete picture of canoeing like yeah. in the world ever in the you know? world anywhere there's a maritime culture yeah there's some type of watercraft right and they'll all be here um tell me in in a nutshell where you're at with the new hmm. and we keep talking about this new building that's going to be quite spectacular so tell us a little bit about it and what the goals are and how you're getting there um we broke ground at our new site mm -hmm. um, in October of 2021, so not so long ago. Uh, today, they are pouring 
the slab, which will be the flooring of the new canoe museum. Right. So foundation work is near to complete. The concrete is all being complete. And in less than two weeks, um, the building will start rising up from the ground and we'll start to get walls and framing. Um, The goal is that we will be open to the public next summer. So summer of 2023, right? the new canoe museum will be open. You can actually paddle your own canoe to the canoe museum. 100%. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, um, I mean, I said off the top, I could be here all day long, and I wish I could be because it's there's so many interesting things to see here. I can't wait to visit your new museum and encourage everyone to come here in the meantime because it's incredible. So thank you so much for your time. Really thank appreciate you. it. This is a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for coming. It's been our pleasure to share a little bit of the behind the scenes at the Canoe Museum. We hope you can join us. If you'd like to contribute to the fundraising efforts to build a permanent home for the Canadian Canoe Museum collection, you'll find a link in our show notes. Award-winning Canadian writer Paul Rush contributed to the magazine frequently throughout the 90s and aughts, writing several stories about his lifetime's worth of summers spent at the lake. This essay, In Sickness and in Health, about how he successfully dealt with a health scare while alone at the cottage, is from our June 1998 issue. It's read now by Pedro Mendez. It was 1.30 in the morning of August 13, and I was alone and awake in the cottage. A thunderstorm was tailing off, soft lightning glimmering on the lake, the wind fading, rain easing. I was alone, awake, and ill. My lower abdomen was sore, a dull pain deep inside. I hoped it was something I had eaten, and I poured a glass of Bromo seltzer and tried to sleep. But an hour later, I was fully awake again, damp with sweat, the pain sharper, reminding me of my burst appendix two decades ago. I paced the cottage and looked at the phone. Who would I call, alone on an island in the dying storm? Who would come and get me? What should I do? I dressed, slowly. Bending over was beyond me, and I couldn't even think of tying my shoes. The night air was soft and fair when I stepped outside to go to the bathroom, with scant success. I wondered if my colon had tied itself in a knot. I had to get off the island. I put on a poncho and headed over the little hill towards the boathouse, walking slowly, cradling my pain. I started my boat, backed carefully into the narrow dark channel, this was no time to hit a rock, and headed into the main channel of the lake, aiming for my car at the marina. The pain was bad. Each small wave hurt. Alone in the dark in the boat, I now knew this was serious. I eased into the marina dock, tied the boat loosely, and doubled over, protecting my pain, walked to the car. Briefly, I thought of asking for help, but there were no lights. Besides, cottagers solve their own problems. I drove to the nearest hospital, 50 kilometers away in Peterborough, foot to the floor except for the periods of pain when I had to slow to a crawl, passing the few cars of mourning blowing through stops. I followed those blue and white hospital signs, parked at emergency, and crept in. They put me on a gurney, asked me questions, took my blood pressure, touched my stomach, and drew off a liter of fluid. The relief was wonderful. The prognosis of a prostate operation? Less so. I thanked them effusively and returned to the car, relieved, 
although not completely at ease, shaken but alive, driving into the soft light of morning. I've had several life-threatening emergencies before, but like most cottagers, it never occurred to me one would strike while I was alone on an island in the dark. Nor, I supposed, does it occur to most of us what can happen far from telephones or friends down that long and torturous cottage road. Yet I should know better. One June at my former cottage in Halliburton, alone in the gathering dusk, I had been relocating an interior wall. I dropped off a stepladder and drove my left foot into a pair of four-inch nails protruding from the floor. I pulled free, painfully, and limped into the living room, trailing blood. I drew the boot off, got a basin of warm water with a little salt, and soaked my foot. It hurt. I phoned the Halliburton Hospital, and they told me to come in. The doctor looked at my foot, the nurse put a bandage on it and gave me a tetanus shot, and they turned me loose. That twilight drive back to the cottage was similar to the early morning drive back from Peterborough. I was elated that I had had my pain relieved, and in shock. The car wandered on the road. And now, as I headed back to my boat at the marina, I thought of my ancient grandmother at the family cottage in Bala. She was often struck by heart pains, and we children would be sent into town on foot to ask for the doctor or to get a supply of her pills. We had several alarms a summer, but illness never kept my grandmother from the Muskoka she loved. Nor will it keep me, nor, I am sure, most cottagers from the way of life we cherish. I parked at the marina, climbed into my boat in the rain-fresh sunlight, and drove into the tranquility of morning. And into the uncertainty of life. Hey, Cottage Coach Adam Holman here. Some cottage memories I want to keep forever. Like that proud look on my son's face the first time he hooked a fish. Or keeping him up late so he can see all the stars that we never see back in the city. But if I could forget one thing about the cottage, it would be the swarms of mosquitoes. And that's tough to do when you're covered in itchy reminders of every second you spent in shorts. So to make sure my family and I remember the good stuff, we never forget to use off gentle insect repellent. It repels mosquitoes for up to five hours, and the deep-free formula isn't oily, greasy, or sticky. So now I can remember the good stuff and forget the mosquitoes. That's it for this episode. Thanks for joining us. Please take a minute to subscribe to this podcast so that each new episode will automatically download to your app and be ready for you to enjoy. We'll have new episodes every Thursday throughout the summer. And please leave us a review. It helps more people find us. And speaking of subscribing, let me share a few reasons why you should subscribe to Cottage Life. The magazine offers you more of the same great content you heard today, including all of the things you don't know you don't know about life at the lake. And by supporting the magazine, you're also supporting this podcast. So podcast listeners get a special deal. Subscribe today and you'll get six issues plus a free copy of our amazing Cottage Spaces booklet, which features our favorite cottages from 35 years of publishing. All this for just $24.95. To sign up, visit cottagelife.com slash podoffer. Our sound design is by Amanda Fusco. This podcast is produced by Catherine Jun and me, 
Michelle Kelly. I'll see you on the dock. <laughs> <laughs>